The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Well, we are in our second week of going through the book of Jonah. So it's a, a short little book, but it is packed full brimming. So if you don't have a Bible, please, uh, you should be able to find a Bible uh, somewhere underneath a seat. Uh, please, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to, for that to be a gift to you. Uh, we want you to have a Bible. And then um, Jonah is like two pages. So if you have one of those Bibles, it is on page 541 and 542. Uh, or you can look at your table of contents and, and find that. Um, man, so thankful for Ashley, so thankful for just your transparency and just your honesty, um, because I think that that really models the heart of the book that we're going through. Um, just to kind of give you guys an, an overview of Jonah, um, so Jonah's a prophet. God calls him to go do something really, really hard, go preach to Nineveh, and Jonah says no, and then Jonah runs uh, about 2,500 miles in the opposite direction, going to Nineveh, and so he's basically like, no, and I'm leaving, I'm out, and so he just, he sprints to get away from God, and God says, well, that's fine, because you can't outrun me, so God chases him down and, uh, and throws a storm at him, and then he uh, has a big fish swallow Jonah. Uh, and so there's nothing, you know, that's going to get you, if you're ever like, all right, I, uh, I can't get out of this, then it's, you know, it's a fish swallowing you whole. Uh, and so he's swallowed, you know, you have chapter two, this whole prayer of, you know, semi-repentance, you know, we'll talk about that more. Uh, and then you see Jonah go and actually do what he's told to do reluctantly, frustratingly, and you get to see God's heart for, for the city, um, but one of the things that's really interesting to note is that uh, it doesn't, the book of Jonah doesn't really specifically state its author, but it's kind of assumed that Jonah is the one that's writing this own, his own biography, as it were, his own story. And uh, the, the name Jonah actually means dove, and doves were used for being messengers, in that day, is so they would attach the message, they would send it, you know, and so it was to be a messenger. And, uh, and so Jonah is a messenger, uh, however reluctantly he intended to be, you know, he, he ends up being sent. And his, his father's name is Amittai and actually means truth. So Jonah is the, the son of truth. And it's really an interesting thing because he's writing this book disclosing where he's at and what's really going on in his life. And so I think it's just such a it's such an important point for us to realize is that Jonah is opening up and he's saying, I mean, here are all my mistakes. Here are my failures. Here is my deepest, darkest transgressions. And I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to let you see how God was working in the midst of all of it. And, and hopefully, because we, we don't really end, the book ends, and so you don't really get to see that Jonah has repented. But hopefully, if he is the one that authors it, you get to see that there has been a change in his heart that he's come to the point at which he is, is able to bring forth and say, hey, here's what's going on in my life, and I'm able to, to show that. I'm able to be real and to be transparent. And so I hope that you see that as you come, that, that that's our heart, that we, we are people that are continually need to be broken and need to be transparent because this is how God works in us. God works in us when we are, are truthful and when we're honest, and the world desperately needs to see, not that we have everything together, but we know the one that is able to put us back together the one that is good, that is gracious, that is loving. And so I hope that that, 
I think that that marks our church, but that's just an encouragement for us to continue to be a church that is marked by that, a church that is marked by openness, by transparency, um, because that's what we need from one another. We need that kind of genuineness. So, all right. So uh, last time we talked through, but I want to go through that again. Why go through Jonah? Three reasons real quick, but uh, Jonah, first, Jonah gives us a concrete example of sin and grace. Uh, So sometimes those words are, you know, we throw those words a lot, around a lot, and we don't really know what they mean. And this gives us a very practical, concrete example of sin and grace. Sin is running from God. Grace is God's pursuit of us in the midst of us running away. You know, is God's continued pursuit of us. And why is this so important? It's so important because if we don't understand what sin means and looks like, and we don't understand what grace is, then we don't understand the gospel. We don't understand what it means for us to be saved. We don't understand what the gospel looks like in the lives of others concretely you know, of them running away and us learning how to pursue with love and with grace and with kindness. So it's super important that we understand Jonah because we get a better understanding of the gospel. Uh, Second, um, we are all Jonah. So we ended our sermon last week talking about that uh, um, at the Day of Atonement that the Jews, they will read Jonah and then together they will say, we are Jonah. Why? Is because Jonah is very relatable. I think every single one of us can relate to Jonah and that there are times where God has called us to do something and we're like, no, 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 nope. You know, and we just book it the other way because we're like, I don't want anything to do with that. I, call me to obey other things, God, because I'll do those, but not that. And so all of us have these experiences, I think, in our life where we plug our ears, you know, turn the music, we, we do whatever we can to run away from what God's calling us to. Um, or we see the other side of Jonah. I think sometimes uh, some of us have the other experience. Well, we'll do what God's asking us to do, but through gritted teeth, and we're really angry about God. We're angry uh, at God because he's called us to do it. And so we're not joyful, we're not excited, we're not passionate, but we're like, God, I'll do this because... I don't really have a choice, so whatever. And so we just go through it, and uh, and we learn that we learn the consequences for both of those because God rebukes Jonah in both of them. So we we it's Jonah's relatable, and then it really it goes along with our blessed series, right? Jonah shows us God's heart for a rebellious city. I mean, Nineveh was as as evil and wicked a city as you can imagine. I mean, they're the capital city of Assyria, and they were atrocious. I mean, what they did in war to Israel and to the, the, the countries around um, was barbaric. I mean, they would decapitate, stack heads up. I mean, it, they would skin a lot. I mean, just horrendous atrocities that would scar your psyche for life if you had seen them or if you knew of people that they were perpetrated against. I mean, this is World War II Germany gas camps. You know, seeing people you love tortured and dragged off, not knowing if they're, I mean, this is horrible horrible stuff. And yet it shows God's love for evil. Um, And so it should show us our heart and our love for our city. You know, that's why we have bless, is that our, our call is to go into this, to be agents of love and of grace. And the only reason that we're going to be able to do that is if we partner with God and we see his love and his care for the city. Because if we think God's apathetic, then of course we're going to be apathetic. But if we really understand the passion of God for the city, for the people, then that should motivate it. That should move us if we're his people. That should guide us into being uh, passionate.
perhaps, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. So, big idea, uh, God is sovereign in showing his grace and discipline. God is sovereign in showing his grace and discipline. We should find joy in his sovereign plan. We should find joy in a sovereign plan. So we're going to talk about seven truths within Jonah because this passage is laced with so much. Uh, and so uh, I know usually I do three, but I'm going to do seven. And so pray for me. All right. Uh, we, you know, yeah, let's go. All right. So seven truths. Uh, number one, God is sovereign in all things. The first truth that we learn from this passage and we see in the book of Jonah is that God is sovereign in all things. So look at Jonah's story first to, to see this. So God, God knew one, the sin of Nineveh. He knew what Jonah would do, but God sovereignly called Jonah. Jonah's like, no, I'm not having it. Jonah says, no, rebels. And where does Jonah end up on? He ends up on a boat with dirty pagans, the same that he was trying to run away from, right? I mean, just accident that that happens. And then in the midst of his rebellion, God appoints a storm. He appoints wind and a storm to kick up, right? To go into, to discipline Jonah. I mean, it gets to the point at which they know, these, these sailors, they know that this isn't a normal storm, right? They know that this is divine, that this is not ordinary. Something's gone on. You know, whether it was the, the wrong season and storm shouldn't have been happening that season, you know, but, and the, the severity of the storm, but they know. And so God has appointed this storm to happen for the discipline of Jonah. Not only that, but then you see the lots are rolled, you know, and lots are random. I mean, lots are kind of like us drawing straws, you're like, all right, who picks the short straw, you know? I mean, it's intended to be kind of this random assortment, but yet they, they believe that there is a divine uh, result that would happen from this. And so they, they roll lots and just happens to be on Jonah, right? The, the person that they're trying to discern, who, on whose account has this evil come to us? And so we see that God is, is sovereign in that. And then not only that, but 
we see that God is sovereign, that he appoints a fish to come and to, to swallow Jonah. And so we see God's sovereign hand in all of these events. In Proverbs 16, 13, it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And knowing that God is sovereign, even the minute details. And so we see this in Jonah's story, but we see this in the Bible also. So two stories that I want to talk about from the Bible. First, I think that this is most clearly seen in Joseph's story. So the story of Joseph is found in Genesis. And, uh, Many of you know Joseph, you know, uh, many colored coats. So he was the favorite of his father. And because of that, his brothers hated him. And he is, you know, thrown away and sold to slavery in Egypt. And this evil, I mean, just his brothers were, were planning on, let's just kill him, you know? And then, you know, one of them in attempt to save him said, oh, let's just sell him. You know, we can gain profit from it. And so he's sold to Egypt. And then he goes and he works for Potiphar. And he rises, he does well. But then Potiphar's wife says that he's trying to, you know, she had been trying to come on to him and, uh, and he has integrity and said no, ran away. But she was not happy that she couldn't get what she wanted. And so she lied about Joseph. And now Joseph goes from being, you know, in a prominent place in favor to now being thrown in prison. And we see Joseph's story continues on that he's in prison for a, a long duration, and he gives he gives his interpretation of dreams to two guys, and one they they it comes to fruition, but they they forget he forgets about jo- about Joseph. Well, eventually something happens to where Joseph Joseph is given an opportunity to go before Pharaoh. He interprets the dream. Joseph is now put in second command, and all of his brothers come back to Joseph because the, the whole land is in famine. They're starving, there's no food, and the brothers come and they see, the, and Joseph knows who they are, but they don't recognize Joseph. And they go through this whole kind of rigmarole of a relationship, you know, and, and finally it comes to this place where Joseph reveals his identity to them. And, and it, this passage in this verse, it says, you intended this for evil. Right? I mean, all, his brothers did all of this. They sold him into slavery. I mean, the, there are other people that they did, I mean, wicked things. I mean, Potiphar's wife lied. I mean, they were, he was forgotten about in prison. All of these things, he says, they, they intended that for evil. God intended it for good. So what you see here is that you see God is sovereign in all of these things, that, that people are morally accountable for their choices, yes. But he says that God is the one, God is intention in every act and every choice in that was good and that he was bringing about for his sovereign purpose and it was good. And so we believe that, that here in this, this isn't an accident. God is sovereignly orchestrating all of these things but yet humanity is intentionally doing it also. And so their, their will in it, it was evil, but yet God's will in it is good. He has good plans and good purposes that he is working out, even through the wicked intentions of men. And we see this ultimately in Jesus' story. Who killed Jesus? Who, who killed Jesus? I mean, well, you can look at the Jews. I mean, right? I mean, there's a crowd of people yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. I mean, obviously they had something to do with it. And so, yes, I mean, you know, the crowd of Jews, you know, helped cheer on to kill Jesus. You know, I mean, maybe you look at Herod. Herod could have probably freed Jesus, but he said, no, you know, he passed him on. Pilate, I mean, Pilate was pretty culpable. He was the one that actually gave the final decree to say, go ahead and do it. He was the one that had power to do it. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, I mean, they were the ones that brought Jesus in and had a trial. And all of these, all these people, they're, they're morally accountable. I mean, right? They, weren't they the ones that killed Jesus? But yet, yet you read in Acts and it says that it was God's will that Jesus would be crushed. 
that it was his purpose. And read this, Acts 4, 27 through 28 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now hear this, what this means is it's not fatalism. It doesn't mean, well, God's going to do what he's going to do, so it doesn't matter what we do, it doesn't matter our choices, not at all. We're morally held accountable for our choices, but what it does mean is it means that God is sovereign in everything that he does, that God is in complete control, and that his plans and purposes are good, even if we don't understand how that's working out right now. And so we read a couple other verses that kind of talk about it. Psalm 115.3, it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. And Psalm 135.6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all and all deeps. And so two consequences, two, two benefits that should happen in our lives as a result of God's sovereignty. First, God's sovereignty should bring us peace. God's sovereignty should bring us peace. If God is in control of our lives, if God has appointed the day that we will be born and the day that we will die, if yet every day before there is yet one has been appointed, then there is peace because we know that although it might be confusing to us, God knows and God is in control. And that should bring us great peace. I know for me in the moments of greatest trial, the moments of greatest pain or confusion, when I stop and I think about, no, God is in control. God knows. God has a better plan for this day, for this moment, for, for this season of my life than I have, it brings peace into my life. Psalm 139, 16, it says, your eyes saw my unformed substance and your books, and your books, sorry, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You hear that? You hear what he's saying? He's saying that every single day in our lives was written in his book before there is yet one. God knows, God has planned, God has purposed all of these things, even down to the minute details of casting lots. God has appointed and ordained. Uh, so this, I think that this should bring us peace because God is in control, because God is good. The second thing I think this should do is that God's sovereignty should bring boldness into our lives. It should bring boldness and passion. God has promised that people will trust him. God has promised that if we go forth, if we proclaim the gospel, that, that people will trust him. People will come to know him. And we see in Jonah that, listen, what God can do, even in spite of someone rebellious, God can change the worst sinner's heart. The most rebellious, broken nation, he can change them. And so what this does is it brings boldness into our lives. It means that we know that it's not it's not by our willpower, it's not by our efforts, but it's by the Lord. And so therefore, it means that we have boldness to trust that God, what I can never do, God can do. God can change people's lives. God can change people's hearts. God can change circumstances. And so it should lead us to have a confident boldness. And listen, this doesn't mean that we're stupid. Well, God's prepared a day for me to die, so I'm gonna go and risk my life all the time, right? I mean, like we're called to be wise, we're called to be stewards, but it, it does bring a confidence to know that my, my life is in my father's hands. And so in the early church, this led them to great confidence and zeal in the midst of persecution. To know that and when they were martyred, they viewed it as a gift that God was giving, that God was the one that appointed their day of death and their day of life. And so they approached that day with great confidence, knowing that this is something that my sovereign, loving father has ordained and has orchestrated for my good and for people's for the witness, for the spread of the glory of God. 
and they approach that day knowing that this that though men might be doing this, this is God's will. You see, and if we have that perspective, we understand that God's will is working be, behind and underneath all of the random, seemingly you know, evil events that God has a better plan. He's working out. God's not in chaos. God's not surprised. God is working these things together for, for his glory and for our good. So the first thing is God is sovereign over all things. We see that, I think, very, very clearly in Jonah. The second thing, the second truth is that our rebellion brings discipline that impacts others. And we talked about this a lot last time, but just briefly, that our rebellion brings discipline that impacts others. We see this in Jonah. I mean, Jonah says no to God, and how does it affect him and all the people around him? Well, he puts a bunch of sailors, their lives at risk because God sends a storm and that discipline, and it says it threatens to break up the ship. And so they're, they're in great fear and their lives are at risk. And so we learn that, that listen, our rebellion, our disobedience and sin, that it, it doesn't just affect us, that it affects all those around us. And one of the conversations I had when I first became a Christian, I would, you know, uh, I'd drive myself to church and I would talk to my parents because they weren't, they weren't going to church at the time. And, uh, and I would tell them, I was like, man, mom and dad, don't you realize one of the biggest things that happens when you're not going is that your disobedience, your refusal to be a part of the body, to be connected, it's not, it's not just that you're missing out, but you're hurting other people. You don't think that God's giving you gifts, God's giving you talents, God's giving you abilities that you're robbing other people of? that God would use you to pour in, to encourage, to benefit others. And therefore, you think that, well, I'm just missing out on hearing the word preached or on, you know, being encouraged or it's just, you know, it's just affecting me. But that's such a lie because God made us as a body. And he says that we can't say, oh, I don't need the foot. I don't need the eye. I can go without a hand today. He says we need the body, that we are to be integrated together and that when we just decide, ah, eh, well, community, just optional, doesn't really matter for me, then we're actually, our disobedience, it hurts other people because they aren't gonna be blessed or encouraged as God would want them to be because of our presence there. And so our, our rebellion, it doesn't just affect us. It affects other people, you know? And, and sometimes the, the discipline comes too. I remember when I was in, uh, I was in high school, I learned that sports are, can be really good for educating you. Uh, and uh, I got in trouble when I was younger quite a bit. Uh, and so I thought I was a wise guy. I was on the soccer team and uh, I was my, fresh, my freshman year. And I thought I was a wise guy. I was messing around the lunchroom and pulled the kid's chair out from underneath him and he just sat on, you know, fell, fell on, sat on, his, sat on his rear on the floor, you know, and I thought it was hilarious and uh, got a detention for it. So, uh, you know, whatever, thought I was, thought it was fine. I get out to the soccer field and our coach finds out about it and he makes me and all four of the senior captains line up to run. And so I quickly learned that, that my actions didn't just affect me, that it affected all of the captains as well. And they were much bigger, stronger, and faster than me as well. So that wasn't a good thing. And so, I mean, our, and humorous things are not, but our actions, they affect other people. We don't just sit in a vacuum. And so that's why God calls his people to be holy as he is holy. He loves us. And he wants us to encourage one. And, and here's the opposite is true as well. You know, we can focus on the negative. But listen, your obedience, it encourages other people. You know, one of the best things for me is when I come and I see somebody else that they're not doing it because somebody else is looking, but I know that they're genuinely pursuing Christ and that encourages me. That draws out a deeper love, a deeper passion, a deeper desire for faithfulness unto the Lord. And so you don't know it, but as you are pursuing Christ unto him, 
you're encouraging other people. You're helping to stimulate the body. And this is, this is church discipline the good way, right? I mean, this is, this is the ideal is that no, you're not, you know, you're not having to call people out because of sin, but you're actually encouraging one another to continue to pursue Christ. And this is, man, this is what I desire for our church. And I see it in us is that we're a people that are so in love with God, so engaged in his mission that we are encouraging one another to follow that. And so that's, that's one of the truths that we see here is that our rebellion brings discipline and impacts others and our obedience, likewise, it blesses and encourages other people. The third truth that we see is that religion is ironic, knowing about God without knowing God. Religion is ironic, knowing about God without knowing God. So look at, look at Jonah, look at what he says. When, when he's questioned, he says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Right? So he, he knows about God. He knows, and, he, and there's kind of a sense of pride. I mean, I am the people of God. I'm saved. I know the Lord. I know good theology. I mean, Jonah knows all the right things to say. When he shows up, you, you interview Jonah, you're like, man, this guy's got his act together. He knows theology back and forth. He knows it really well. But here's the irony. When you look at his life, his life is in stark contrast to what he says he believes. He says that he is the people of God, but yet he's not obeying God. He says that he fears the Lord, but yet he's asleep in the bow of the boat, showing apathy and indifference to God's discipline. I mean, when he's asked, he, I mean, the, question, the only question that he doesn't answer is his occupation. He doesn't answer that question. He doesn't say, I'm a prophet, because he's running away from his calling that God has given to him. And the irony is it, in it is that he knows all of the right things to say. He knows all the things that he should believe, but yet his life is in stark contrast to it. But yet, the, the sailors who don't know God, their lives are marked by it. Their lives show integrity and compassion. We'll talk about more in that, in that next point, but, but I think that that is one of the, the things that God is showing us here, and we see in the New Testament as well, is that Jesus' greatest opponents were the Pharisees. And we know what the Pharisees, most of us know what the Pharisees were like. I mean, they were the people that were most similar to Jesus in their theological convictions. They believed very similar to how Jesus believed about who God was and about how God operated, but yet their lives did not match what they believed. It was in stark contrast to what they professed. And so the conviction for us, and, and hear this, this is me preaching to me because I think the most dangerous place in the church is in the pulpit. Because it's such an easy place for you to know things with, without living out things. And so too, I think one of the most dangerous places is in seminary. Because, and I think one of the most blessed places can be seminary also, but I think it can be one of the most dangerous places because, you know, I experienced when I was in college that it's, it's very easy to know a lot about God. It's very easy to read books and to study and to let that puff you up and, and fill you with pride without actually having your life marked by it. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says that they're like whitewashed tombs, that outwardly they look clean, their acts together. I mean, they've been pressure washed. And so they've got it together. People walk through them, they're like, man, that's a, that's a clean gravestone. But yet underneath, they're full of wickedness. Dead man's bones lie in there. And so if you were to peel back that veneer of a smile, you would find greed and lust and pride in spades. And so the question for us is how does this apply to our lives is what areas of your life do you profess? Do you have confession in, but yet your life isn't marked by living in that? 
And so let me just let me just throw out two that I see is that we we profess we can we confess with our mouth that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of our time. He's worthy of our finances. He's worthy of our lives. But yet, oftentimes we spend our passions and our energies in other places. And so, for me, that's an area where the Lord constantly pulls back and says, "Does your confession match your life? Do, does what you profess you profess God is worthy? But yet, does your life match up with that? Because we 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 have to be careful that we're not being hypocritical." Second one is that we proclaim God is missional, right? We proclaim that God is a God that loves, that he chases his, and we love that truth, right? I mean, we celebrate that truth. That's a truth that's really warm to our hearts is that, listen, God chases us down and our rebellion and our brokenness is that God loves us more than our sin. We love that truth. We hold dearly to that truth. But do we live that truth? Do we live in the reality of God's love for us, but also do we love other people more than their sin? Are we willing to, to inconvenience ourselves as Christ inconvenienced himself to reach others? I mean, one of the things that I think is marked is that we have our neighborhood sign up, you know, to get outside of ourselves and to actually get, have, invite one or two, three or four neighbors over for dinner and get to know people. And yet we, we haven't had anybody that signed up. And, and I think because it's a challenge for us, you know, I know that it's challenging for me at times in my busy schedule to say, man, I want to partner with God. I want to do what God wants to do rather than being marked by my agenda. And so are we, are we living out the mission that God has given to us? Are we able to be distracted? And so we learn from Jonah that the irony of religion is that it, it's so easy to know lots of things about God and yet have our life not be marked by those truths. Uh, the next thing that we see is that God can use the world to rebuke the church. God can, see, God can use the world to rebuke the church. And we see this clearly in Jonah's story. So look at, Jonah is asleep in the bowels of the boat, and the captain is the one that comes. And he says, I love one of the translations. He's like, arise, O sleeper. You know, like, and, and, and come, like, what are you doing? You're sitting here taking a, you know, like a deep nap, and we're, we're trying to rescue the boat, and you could care less. And so we see that, that Jonah shows us is that there are times where God uses the world to rebuke the church, that God loves us enough. And, and here's the thing, God is our teacher. God is our ultimate teacher, and he can use anyone, anywhere to teach us. We need to be open to that because sometimes we think we just dismiss people. We just turn people, they don't know me. They don't know anything about me, but God might use that person to rebuke and to teach us. God can teach us from any means. We learn that from Jonah is that there are times where God uses the world to rebuke the church. And we see this because another way, the men demonstrate integrity. Jonah could care less and the men are risking their lives to save one another. They ask for forgiveness to, to God, saying, God, you've appointed this. We don't want to. We don't want to kill Jonah. We don't want to throw him overboard. Please forgive us. And they try to row. Even when Jonah says, Jonah's suicidal, and he says, just throw me overboard, whatever. I don't care. And they say no, and they keep rowing. And so you find here men of integrity. I mean, and this is, you wouldn't expect it. You'd expect that, I mean, these are sailors. They're like, okay, fine, here you go. Get overboard, we're done, keep going. And they have, they have such great integrity. They say, no, we're gonna keep going even at the risk of our own lives, even at the risk of, of the ship falling apart. We're going to row because we don't want you to die. They, they show this prayer of forgiveness. And so you see such integrity in these, in these men. And there are times where I think that the world shows us 
God's given common grace out into the world, and so there are people around us that aren't Christians, but they show us what integrity looks like. They might show us what, what it looks like to, to be passionate about a mission or a cause. And sometimes we need that, we need that rebuke. You know, for me, even praying about this, how the Lord is kind of rebuking me and how the world, you know, how he's used the world to rebuke me. Uh, I had a, a college professor uh, that uh, was our professor for communication. And uh, we got along pretty well, but just disagreed philosophically. Like he was far more liberal on different issues than I was, not politically, but just socially. And um he has since quit his job at SBU, and uh, his his thing, and I disagree for, you know, like, there are several things I disagree about, but I, what I'm challenged by is uh, is how he is bringing about change. So he, he quit his job at a, a Christian college because evangelicals gathered around Trump. And for him, that was a huge thing, and that was a huge rebellious mark for him of why he wanted to depart evangelicalism and why he wanted to depart from Christianity. You know, and I I reached out to him on Facebook and just lovingly tried to engage with him. But the what he has done, and I, for me it challenges me because it, I think that more Christians should do what he's done, is that he has gone and traveled the country and he's engaging with people that disagree with him, but he's not arguing, he's listening. As he sits down in conversation with them and he asks them why, and he seeks to understand. And he's engaging with people that are radically different from him that believe the exact opposite. And, is, and that's his approach to change. Uh, there's a, a, a video that I watched not too long ago, and it's about an African-American uh, gentleman. And, uh, and in, li- in view of the whole white supremacy movement that has come about, uh, he, for many, many years, uh, he has in- been engaging with the Ku Klux Klan. And he has been building relationships with them. And so he will go into the Ku Klux Klan, he will go uh, and engage with white supremacists, and he will build relationship. He'll get a breakfast with him, and he'll sit down and say, why do you think that I deserve to be killed? Why do you, des- why do you think I deserve to be lynched? And he puts a, a face, he puts a person, a reality behind their racism, and he engages with them. And you know what he collects? He collects the robes of the KKK that have converted, that he has since built relationships and love. And I think that is the way, that is the way that the church is called to engage is how many people do we know, if we can easily lament about how wicked the world is, you know, transgenderism, same-sex marriage, you know, abortion, we can, I mean, we can easily go and point the finger about wickedness within the world, about things that we disagree about, but how many people do you know that have same-sex attraction? How many people do you know that have had an abortion? How many people do you know that are struggling with transgenderism? Do we, do we know and engage with the people that are different than us, or do we stay within our our like Jonah wanted to. Jonah wanted to stay within Israel. He wanted to stay within his comfort zone, within his people, his clan, his tribe. And God said, no, I'm going to get you outside. Because how does it that change happens? And for me, that's a rebuke to me because it says I have to be more intentional with building relationships with people that are different than me. Because it's, it's harder. You naturally get along with people that are like you. And it takes intentionality. It takes effort. But how else is there change in the world? And so, too, God wants to do that in our lives, is that God can use the world to rebuke the church. And I think, for me, that's one, I just want to share, that's one of the ways that the Lord, for me, has clarified ways that I want to engage with people that are radically different than me. Because if I don't engage with them, I can't hear them, I can't understand them, and the gospel's not going to come to bear in their lives. So, fifth, fifth thing we see the fifth truth is that peace comes through propitiation. Peace comes through propitiation. Now, that's a big word. It's a $5 theological word, right? Propitiation. 
And it means to satisfy the anger, right? To satisfy anger, to turn away wrath. Wrath is settled opposition, okay? Sometimes we think of like God's wrath and we think of, you know, some of us have maybe had a, a abusive father or we've seen someone that is just they have anger issues and so they just they've snap on a dime and so we think of this emotionally unstable individual and that's what we think of wrath and that's not wrath wrath for god is a very settled opposition against it's that he he sees things that destroy his creation that destroy his glory and he hates those things and so he is opposed to those things he is against those things and ultimately, his justice, we believe that God is a God of justice, and that's good news. I mean, we don't want a God that hate could care less. Listen, I know that you do all these wickedness, but I could care less. Keep doing it. Propagate evil. Go ahead. I mean, if you've ever been truly wronged, you desire justice. One of my best friends is a lawyer. I was talking to him this weekend, and he, he fights for those that have been wronged, and he tries to get justice for them. Right? I mean, whether they've been wrong because there was an accident, you know, and someone hit them, or something was made incorrectly and it's wounded them for life, but he wants justice for them. And so, too, when we're wronged, we want justice. We want things to be put right. And ultimately, we believe that God is going to put things right. But here's the question what happens when we're the problem? What happens when the problem is us and not out there and not them? How does God put to rights us? How, how, how does God put us to rights? And that's what it means is this idea of propitiation is that this idea that, that God's wrath has to be satisfied, that we, all of us, have a debt against God because of our sin, but it must be satisfied. And so we see that with Jonah is that Jonah, God's wrath is coming down. And what happens is Jonah is thrown out and it satisfies the wrath of God. It, sa- it satisfies his opposition and it brings peace. It brings stillness. It brings a peace to the, to the sailors. And even to Jonah, he's swallowed by a fish, you know, so I'm sure it wasn't as peaceful for him. But you see the, the wind and the storms are, are satisfied. And so, too, we see this in the scriptures that ultimately we believe that, that what it took to satisfy God's wrath against us was it took Christ, is that Jesus came and that he drank to the full measure the wrath of God for you and for me. I mean, it's imagine yourself, you're sitting down in Niagara Falls and they had plugged it up and all of a sudden you see all of this water just rushing towards you. I mean, it's coming towards you. It's going to crush you, the weight of that water, the impending force of it. And at the very last second, you see a door that opens right in front of you and all of it is just sucked out and not a single drop comes upon you. Do you understand that that's what Jesus has done for us, that the wrath of God the full weight of our sin was coming for us. And instead of us feeling the weight of that, Jesus stepped forward and he drank all of it. He swallowed the whole cup down to the very last dredge so that we, we would know peace. We would know peace with God. That God is no longer, when you trust in Jesus, God is no longer angry at you. He's no longer condemning you. Instead, he is grace for you. He loves you. He desires intimacy with you. We can have a genuine peace with God. That relationship is no longer marked by enmity or by anger. And because of that, because of that, we cannot just simply have this status of peace with God, but we can experience peace with God. I know for me that has been such a great reality is that, have you ever, when, when you've been in close relationship with somebody else, their mood affects your mood, right? I mean, if you come home and your spouse is like, it's been a horrible day, right? It kind of affects your mood a little bit. You know, or if you come in and you can tell like, man, they just have had a great day and you're kind of like, you know, my day wasn't great, but it kind of rubs off a little bit. Man, 
man, God is the God of all peace. The God of all peace. And when you know that his wrath, that his anger has, has been subsided, that has been drank fully, and that he has only love and grace for you, when you actually engage with him, when you actually relate to him, there's peace that transfers into your life. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. And I've experienced that. And my prayer for you is that you would genuinely experience that, that in times of stillness, mm-hmm. that you would experience God's peace with you. The stillness, his love and his grace. And so we see that peace, peace comes through propitiation. First John 4, 10, it says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God has loved us. The sixth truth that we see is that God's grace changes fear to faith. God's grace changes fear to faith. So we see this in Jonah's story is that all throughout the, the, the sailors are exceedingly fearful. I mean, they are terrified out of their minds. But at the end, we see that their fear, it changes in, its, in how it's expressed. They're their fear now changes to vows. It changes to worship. It leads to genuine faith. And why? Why does it lead to, to genuine faith? Well, first, I think we need to realize that we, if we're not a Christian, we should fear the Lord. I mean, the Lord is a terrifyingly powerful being of which there is none like him. I don't know if you've ever been trapped out of a storm. Have you ever seen the might of God? I mean, when we look at, I mean, Irma came not that long ago. When you see that, it's just a small glimpse of the infinite power of our God. Now, I remember when I first got my boat, uh, I was going around Fort DeSoto. It was late at night. We were trying to get bait at, uh, we were going fishing, and uh, we were trying to get bait out at the Fort DeSoto Pier. We're like, oh, it looks like there's some white caps out there, but it'll be okay. You know, we're just getting out there real quick. And, uh, and at night, it can be deceiving. And we got out there, and what happens is when you turn that corner, it goes from, uh, from very shallow to very deep, and so it breaks. And so there are, if it's really windy out there, it can get really big waves. We didn't know. We turned that corner, and we were in about six or seven foot swells. And I've never been in any waves that large in my life. I was with my buddy Glenn, and we look at each other, and we're like, we could actually die here. And so it was, it was one of the scariest moments, and we just, like, floored it. Luckily, we got out of there. We were fine, and I've never done anything that stupid again. Um, <laughs> but that moment, you realize how, how frail we are, how weak we really are, and how powerful God is. And we see that through the elements at times. But God is, God is infinitely powerful. And that we ought to be, there ought to be a healthy fear as these sailors had if you're not related to God. But you see that what changed them wasn't the fear of God, of God's wrath. I mean, right, because they, they, that's what originally, they were exceedingly fearful because they thought the wrath of God was coming upon them. But what changed them? What changed them from just being afraid to making vows into worship? Grace. Grace is what changed their heart from being just deathly afraid of God's wrath to change to worship him. And so too, you and I, our hearts will be changed, not just when we see the severity and the power of God, but when we see the grace of God, when we see that God could crush us. I mean, God could have easily flipped over the boat and drowned the whole lot of them, but instead he chose to show grace. And so too, in our lives, God, when, when we realize the grace, the what we deserve. Because here's the thing, when you don't think that you deserve death because of your sin, when you make light of sin, you make light of grace. Because if you haven't sinned much, then God hasn't shown grace much. 
and therefore his grace is very trivial, it's very insignificant. And so when you understand the severity of sin, that, you, that our sin really does deserve death, it really does deserve God's wrath, then his grace becomes so much more beautiful, it becomes so much more powerful as a motivator in our lives. And so, so grace will change your heart when you understand its weight and its magnitude. The, the last thing, the final thing that we learn from this passage is that God is gracious in his provision for runaways. God is gracious in his provision for runaways. Why did God choose Jonah? We mentioned this last time, but, but why did God choose Jonah? God knew all along Jonah was going to rebel. Why didn't God, you know, just say, forget you, Jonah, I'm going to use somebody else. And, and at that, when Jonah disobeyed, why didn't God just let him? Why didn't God just say, well, go your own way, Jonah. I'll, let, I'll leave you alone. Why did God discipline him? Why? I mean, in verse 17, we learn too, Jonah's suicidal. Jonah says, throw me over the boat. I mean, Jonah could have. He could have said, God, I repent. Turn the boat around. I'm going back. I mean, but he didn't. He didn't say, turn the boat around. I repent. He didn't confess his sin. He didn't say, let's head back and, and, and God will relent. Instead, he said, throw me overboard. Basically, kill me. Let, let, let me just die. And we see that that's his attitude later in chapter four. We see that he's suicidal because he said, I'd rather die. And so you can tell that he's just on this verge. He hates the Ninevites so much that he'd rather die. But yet God is gracious to Jonah. Even in the midst of his rebellion, even in the midst of his disobedience, God saves him. God saves him from his suicidal wish and he rescues him. Now, albeit in a disciplinary mode, you know, he swallows, he has a fish come and swallow him. But that was also a part of God's plan. Man, this shows us God's heart that even in the midst, even in the midst of our, our sin, even in the midst of us telling God, I don't want you, I don't care about you, I don't want your plan, God is still gracious. We see this a couple other places in, in the Bible. We see this in Jesus' story of the prodigal son, the prodigal father, right? I mean, he tells a story that there's a father that has two sons and the younger son comes up and tells him, hey, dad, die, just die and give me money because that's all you're good for. And the father gives him money and the son goes off to a far land and he squanders it. He wastes it, reckless living. But he comes to his senses in this pig, pig's pen and he comes back to the father and we see the father's heart that he's a runaway. And before the son can even get out his full repentance, his full confession, the father yells to servants. He, he clothes him with his own robe. He puts sandals on his feet, a ring on his finger. He kills the fatted calf. Man, God is gracious to runaways like you and like me. He, again, with Peter, Peter has just made this confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And Jesus, and Jesus or Peter says, I'll follow you even to death. And Jesus says to him, Peter, you don't realize that before cock crows three times, you are going to deny me. You're going to deny that you even know me. And Peter is in, uh, he, he's like, you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. You don't know me. I know exactly, I would never do anything like that. And Jesus says, but guess what, Peter? I've prayed for you. And when you return, you will strengthen your brothers. Even before he sinned, God had already provided a plan for his return. God is gracious to runaways like you and like me. And this is good news. This should be great news for our soul. 
Because every single one of us have instances and times where we run away from the Lord, where we, we run away either by not doing what he tells us or by doing it and hating that we have to do it. And the good news is that God knows our hearts and God has already, already has a plan and already provided grace and provision to bring us back to accomplish his purpose. Romans 8, 28, it says, For God works together, works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his will. I hope you believe that, that God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. You see, Jonah didn't save the sailors. I mean, it, it, God did. God is able and is sovereign to do and bring himself glory even in the midst of our disobedience. It doesn't excuse it but it means that we're able to trust that our God is bigger than our mess-ups and our sin and that his grace and his provision will chase us down even when we're running, that he can outrun us. And so I hope that this is encouraging to you. For me, this is, this is extremely encouraging for my life. It causes, it says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And so I hope that you today have felt God's kindness towards you, that he knows areas in which you're running away from him and he's calling you back. He's already provided provision and grace for your return. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for Jonah and for um, just the, the example that we see of your love and your grace towards him. And I pray for our life, God. I pray for these truths um, that they would not be something that we just know about but wouldn't impact our life. I pray that you would help us to be a sent people, God, as you have called us to be that we wouldn't run away from your call to go into this world and to be your light, that we love people, we would listen to people, that we would be a blessing as we have been blessed. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do what only you can do and finish the work that you have begun. It's in your we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.